Today on How It's Written, I'm going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, an author who's one of the great wellsprings of the horror genre. And if you want the too-long-didn't-read-on-horror, then there's Poe, and there's Lovecraft, and then there's everybody else. I'm going to dive deep into two stories. This is a two-part video series. I'm going to do Call of Cthulhu and Shadow Over Innsmouth. Shadow Over Innsmouth is one of my all-time favorites, but Cthulhu is really worth thinking about because it sparked the entire mythos. In a nutshell, here's how a Lovecraft story works. An investigator seeks out secret knowledge. Someone is looking for trouble, intellectual trouble, and they find truth, as much as they can understand anyway, and it drives them mad in the end. Madness turns out to be the correct understanding of things, because the Lovecraftian truth is a universe in which humanity is utterly insignificant. This is a very modern anxiety. We live in a time, the last 150 to 200 years or so, when old belief systems have collapsed or are collapsing, and nothing has replaced them. We don't have a good story of why we are here and what we are supposed to do. And every expansion of our knowledge in the physical sciences has pointed to our greater and greater irrelevance. The threat, the menace, the thing that drives men mad, the thing that dangles the thread that these investigators must follow, deep into the maze of their own insanity, is always one of the great old ones. They are a pantheon of unpronounceables. Yogg-Sahoth, Nyarlathotep, Azahoth, Shubnigarath, Ithaqua, Tashaga, and Hastur the Unspeakable, who, paradoxically, is the most speakable of them all. Now, screenwriters like to talk about how important story is. And it is. If the story is broken in film, it doesn't work. That's because screenplays are blueprints, and if a blueprint doesn't work, the house falls down. But a story or a novel is not a blueprint. It's the actual thing. It's a habitable structure constructed not from light and sound, but from words and the creative response of the reader. So outlining the story, just outlining, doesn't explain why Lovecraft is great, and that's why you should stick around for the rest of this video. Lovecraft is actually something like a prophet. He's not writing a saga. He's no poet. He's writing revelation, wild and disturbing visions of how things really are or could be. And it's at the level of the image that he really succeeds, and why he's worth reading. Now, the thing that I get with Lovecraft that I don't get anywhere else is this lingering sense that madness is the correct understanding. Lovecraft doesn't scare me when I read him. Not really. Lovecraft scares me years later when I see or hear something I don't quite understand, and it suggests to me these hidden depths of chaos in which we all unwittingly dwell. And whatever other criticism you might have of the man and his writing, and lots of them are justified, I just don't know of anything else like that in literature. Lovecraft echoes through everybody who comes after him. And, as we will see, much of what came before him echoed through him. As the saying goes, good artists copy and great artists steal. And for me, it's tremendously worthwhile to go back and read the things that have inspired generations of writers. I gain power as a writer by going to the source of the river. But before we dive into the story, we have to deal with two things. The mythos and the racism. They are tightly linked, and maybe not in the way you think. 
So Lovecraft created what is known as the Cthulhu Mythos, that pantheon of unpronounceables. The writers who wrote in this mythos after him started to take it very seriously, but Lovecraft didn't. He referred to it as yog sothothery Jesus, yog sothothery It's like he made the whole thing up to troll dyslexics and people with speech impediments. My point is that he didn't engage in obsessive world-building, a term which I've always found to be a bit much, because if you scratch the surface of any fantasy world, you will find an actual historical time-slash-place-slash-personage with a dash of fresh paint and costume jewelry. At best, you're mashing two of those together. For example, Captain Kirk is Horatio Hornblower, and that's straight from the original pitch for Star Trek. And in turn, Hornblower is based on Thomas Cochran, the 10th Earl of Dundonald, who's a fascinating character. Game of Thrones is the War of the Roses, and Westeros is England. This is River Run, the Chateau de Chenonceau. And this is the Eyrie, Neuschwanstein Castle. Although in the TV show, they made it look much more like this, Mont Saint-Michel. To become obsessed with the world or the mythos is to become distracted from the point of the stories. Nobody enjoys backstory, unless the backstory is also a great story. Don't believe me? I defy you to read the Silmaril... I defy you to pronounce the Silmarillion. I defy you to read the Silmarillion. In fact, I defy you to even skim the Wikipedia page without your eyes glossing over. But especially with Lovecraft, the mythos isn't the point. It's how he conveys the point. And with Lovecraft, the racism isn't the point either. Oh, it was very racist. And I don't want to downplay it, and I don't want to disguise how very racist both he and the past were. I don't think it's good to downplay the colossal moral errors that things like slavery, racism, prejudice, tribalism, and bigotry really are. But for Lovecraft, I don't see that racism is really the concern in his stories. He uses the other and the unknown to display his primary concerns. And whenever he felt personally, he's playing on contemporary fears and stereotypes of his day to get the effect he wants. This isn't a justification, it's an explanation. And I can only observe that if you demand ideological purity and essential good-heartedness from the artist you engage with, well, you're not going to get it. I mean, after you're done watching Mr. Rogers and reading Neil Gaiman, who's left? Saints are very rare. Good writers are also rare, and the intersection of those two? Vanishingly small. For me, what Lovecraft seems to be really worried about is twofold. One, the universe is immensely vast and complicated, and we don't matter in it at all. And two, the only thing that even somewhat protects us from this chaos is culture, which is decaying and becoming corrupted. Like I said, these two fears are quintessentially modern, insignificance and lack of a grand narrative, a structure of meaning, a myth to inhabit, is our condition. And we're one of only a few generations of humans that have had to live like this. And I have to think it has something to do with the fact that one in five Americans are on antidepressants. And the CDC reports that 42.4% of Americans are obese. One way or another, it seems like an awful lot of anxiety is getting swallowed. And while I don't think the way Lovecraft uses race and the other to symbolize degeneration and disintegration is appropriate, I have to take number two seriously. As Jung said, something we cannot see protects us from something we do not understand. And Lovecraft keenly felt the decay and collapse of that something we cannot see. 
you could partially track this as a collapse of the church in the West. Tolkien felt this too in response to World War I. The old ways were shattered. In fact, the shock of this cultural change has created and inspired some of the greatest writers and thinkers in the 20th century, and whole philosophical movements, most notably existentialism. It's a valid concern, and it powers Lovecraft's horror. To play racist gotcha games with this might signal virtue, and it certainly is right in places. But don't let it get in your way when you're trying to understand. Because all story uses one thing to symbolize another. And the question is, do you use your symbols well, or do you use them poorly? But still, it's tough. Because you can read racism all over the place in this work. But Lovecraft is highly influential, and you can't pretend he doesn't exist. I think author Mike Ruff did a great job of handling all this without slighting any of it in his book Lovecraft Country. I really enjoyed the ideas of the book and the book itself, but I didn't really find it to be a Lovecraftian story. Nobody goes insane or dies, and the characters you become attached to survive and even, in a sense, triumph. This never happens in Lovecraft. Lovecraft Country is way more optimistic. But it's remarkable because... It's a horror tale told with the quintessentially American horror of slavery and racism. It's also interestingly structured. It's an interlinking series of short stories, a form which I really like and I don't know why we don't see more of. Maybe Mr. Ruff is part of changing that. Anyway, you won't go wrong if you check it out. But this video isn't about Lovecraft Country. It's about Lovecraft Lovecraft. So, Call of Cthulhu. This story is like a Russian nesting doll. It's told by Francis, but Francis does nothing but tell us the stories of Professor Angel, Inspector Legrasse, and Mate Johansson. It's a story within a story within a story. The best example of this kind of thing I find in Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian short story writer, who is truly amazing and at least ten times the writer Lovecraft was. Borges wrote these amazing stories within stories and conveyed a depth of meaning even in the shortest of them that can be dizzying. And it turns out he was inspired, at least in part, by H.P. Lovecraft. And that's the thing. Lovecraft inspired everybody, as we shall see. This is the first line in the story. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our fr of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. I could stop the video here because we've got all of it in the first sentence. An investigator of secret knowledge goes mad in the end because he's learned too much about the truth of things. The start of the story is the death of Francis's great uncle, and Francis has to settle the estate. I, I think this would never fly today, and it's strange that it's worked in a pulp story. I mean, really, it's, it's not very inciting for an inciting incident. It, it really feels like the inciting incident in a tale called Adventures in Probate Court. But there's some horror in that, too. Everyday, ordinary events in Lovecraft lead people into madness. 
Now, it seems like the old professor had a heart attack, but there's this weird hint here. His passing at the age of 92 may be recalled by many. Locally, interest was intensified by the obscurity of the cause of death. The professor had been stricken while returning from the Newport boat, falling suddenly, as witnesses said, after having been jostled by a nautical-looking Negro who had come from one of the queer, dark courts on the precipitous hillside, which formed a shortcut from the waterfront to the deceased's home in William Street. Physicians were unable to find any visible disorder, but concluded after perplexed debate that some obscure lesion of the heart, induced by the brisk ascent of so steep a hill by so elderly a man, was responsible for the end. At the time, I saw no reason to dissent from this dictum, but latterly I am inclined to wonder, and more than wonder. So Francis allows that the professor was old, so the most reasonable explanation is that his heart just gave out. But at this point, we do have two competing theories of death, heart attack and the nautical-looking Negro theory. Our narrator Francis dismisses the idea at first, and that's another feature of Lovecraft. His narrators argue for the most reasonable explanation, and when they fail to carry their argument, they go mad. So Francis's great-uncle Angel has died of mysterious, or perhaps obvious, circumstances, and our man Francis leaps into action. Does he pursue this suspicious, nautical-looking Negro? No, because the racism isn't the point. Lovecraft is setting up a symbol to use later. At this point, even Francis doesn't believe that there was anything untoward with his great-uncle's death when it happened. So he jumps right in, and he reads his uncle's papers. Which is weird, because every other thriller and detective story would have him chasing the murderer. And as he pursued the nefarious evildoer, the story would unfold. But at this point, we don't even have a murderer in this story. And the murder isn't the point. And neither is the action, because in the second installment, he reads more. <laughs> but fear not. Part three is where it gets really exciting for Francis. And by exciting, I mean he stumbles across a newspaper clipping, reads it, I mean obviously, goes to New Zealand, finds nothing, goes to Norway tracking a man named Johansson, only to find out that Johansson is already dead. This time, the murder involves two Lascar sailors. And as Laskari are Indian, we now have more nautical-looking brown people. Or brown-looking nautical people. Because after everything he's read and the strange cults he's learned about, it's all starting to fall into place. So now, having grasped the sinister outlines of the shadowy conspiracy, Francis, man of action, continues reading. He sits right down and he reads Johansson's diary. And at the end of all this reading, he's left with marginal sanity at best. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits, and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering... And decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity, and see that it meets no other eye. So what we have is a guy who has uncovered knowledge, written it all down, and now believes, because he knows too much, that he will be killed by a sinister cult of degenerate, nautical-looking foreigners, and doesn't want anybody to read his story. What's 
the actual Ftangen. This is bizarre. On the surface, it seems bad. I mean, like, why is Lovecraft a thing? As we will see in the second part, The Shadow Over Innsmouth is more conventionally structured story, and I think a better tale all around. But what makes the structure isn't what makes Lovecraft great. Because Lovecraft isn't writing a thriller. He's writing revelation. Like a prophet. It's apocalyptic literature. Not in the sense of the end of the world, but in the sense of the word we get apocalyptic from. The Greek word apokalupsis, which means an uncovering or revelation. And in Lovecraft stories, the truth is revealed to the characters, and the truth doesn't set them free. It destroys them. He's writing stories that work in part like religious texts. And this is especially true and easy to see with Call of Cthulhu, since it's not plotted like a conventional thriller. And the useful question to ask is, how does this oddly structured story pull the reader through it at all? What keeps someone interested? Because somehow it has to work. It was a serialized story published in three consecutive issues of Weird Tales. So what makes us want to continue reading this after the first part? Now the answer could be today, because I heard Lovecraft was good. But that certainly wasn't the answer the first time this was published. And what drives us here is not the interest in the murder of the great uncle, but in what the hell is going on below the surface of this story. Professor Angel must have employed a cutting bureau, for the number of extracts was tremendous and the sources scattered throughout the globe. Here was a nocturnal suicide in London, where a lone sleeper had leaped from a window after a shocking cry. Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America, where a fanatic deduces a dire future from the visions he had seen. A dispatch from California describes a theosophist colony as donning white robes en masse for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardedly of serious native unrest towards the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti and African outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome about this time, and New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines on the night of March 22nd through 23rd. The west of Ireland, too, is full of wild rumor and legendary, and a fantastic painter named Ardois Bonan hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in the sane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. How is this all connected? If this paragraph was a scene in a movie, it would be a straight conspiracy wall. Pictures, yarn, everything. And Francis's story is merely the instrument of revelation. He's John of Patmos. He's receiving and relaying the message. And he's skeptical. A weird bunch of cuttings all told and I can at this date scarcely envision the callous rationalism with which I set them aside. He's the character who, though he hints at the awful things right from the word go, is skeptical enough to allow us access to this story. He allows the reasonable perspective and the simple answer the whole way through, until he can't anymore. So what does Francis read about that drives him nuts? Well, his uncle is obsessed with something called the Cthulhu cult and has been ever since a police inspector showed up at an American archaeological society meeting with a crazy statue. Described like this, it represented a monster of vaguely arthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. This thing 
which seemed instinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated corpulence and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with indecipherable characters. The aspect of the whole was abnormally lifelike, and the more subtly fearful because its source was so totally unknown. Its vast, awesome, and incalculable age was unmistakable, yet not one link did it show with any known type of art belonging to civilization's youth, or indeed any other time. Its very material was a mystery, for the soapy greenish-black stone with its golden or iridescent flecks and striations resembled nothing familiar to geology or mineralogy. The characters along the base were equally baffling, and no member present, despite a representation of half the world's expert learning in this field, could form the least notion of even their remotest linguistic kinship. They, like the subject and material, belonged to something horribly remote and distinct from mankind as we know it, something frightfully suggestive of old and unhallowed cycles in life in which our world and our conceptions have no part. So they asked the inspector, What is this thing? And where'd you get it? The inspector tells a tale of raiding a strange cult in the swamps outside New Orleans, including this. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a sime or an agnarola could paint. Void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire, in the center of which, revealed by the occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith some eight feet in height, on top of which, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carven statuette. From a wide circle of ten scaffolds set up at regular intervals with the flame-girt monolith, as a center hung, head downward, the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right in endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire. So good old Inspector Lagrasse hauls them down to the station and learns all about the great old ones and Cthulhu, including the meaning of this unpronounceable chant. Fnigli... All right. I got nothing. And the punchline to all of this is, only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged and the rest were committed to various institutions. Which makes me, and the reader, want to know what the hell is a Cthulhu anyway? And I don't mean within the context of the Cthulhu mythos. What I mean is, what is this thing symbolically? Where did this idea come from? And why does it seem to resonate with everyone? The first answer I have is a poem called The Kraken by Tennyson. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient dreamless, uninvaded sleep. The kraken sleepeth. The faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height. And far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unencumbered and enormous polypi winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages, and will lie, 
battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep, then once by man and angels to be seen. In roaring he shall rise, and on the surface die. Lovecraft sacked this poem like the Vandals and the Visigoths sacked Rome. The Kraken sleeps below the waters. Cthulhu sleeps below the waters. Tennyson even gives us polyps. And just like swimming in a swamp and getting leeches, you can't read very far in Lovecraft without getting polyps all over you. But the Kraken is a form of a much older water dragon-slash-sea-serpent concept. In the Bible, we find it as Leviathan. This from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And this from Revelation, chapter 20, verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And the threat of Cthulhu is that sooner or later he's going to be loosed for a little season. But even before Leviathan, we have all kinds of dragons who live in the sea. Jormungandr from Norse mythology, and Tiamat from the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic. That's why I think it's worth thinking of Lovecraft in mythical terms, because that's where his stories really succeed, at the level of the image. He uses religious archetypes in strange and new ways. In part three, Madness from the Sea, we get the story of Mate Johansson, after he's dead. So there's zero suspense. In this story, Riley rises from the bottom of the ocean, and Mate Johansson and his crew stumble across it. I suppose that only a single mountaintop, the hideous monolith-crowned citadel whereon Great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may be brooding down there, I almost wish to kill myself forthwith. Johansson survives the encounter by driving a ship through Cthulhu's face. The brave Norwegian drove his vessel head-on against the pursuing jelly which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon galleon. The awful squid head with writhing feelers came nearly up to the bowsprit of the sturdy yacht, but Johansson drove on relentlessly. There was a bursting as if of an exploding bladder, a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, a stench as of a thousand open graves, and a sound that the chronicler would not put on paper. For an instant the ship was befouled by an acrid and blinding green cloud, and then there was only a venomous seething astern, where, God in heaven, the scattered plasticity of that nameless sky-spawn was nebulously recombining in its hateful original form, whilst its distance widened with every second as the alert gained impetus from its mounting steam. And then Johansson goes mad, which in turn drives Francis mad, because now he knows what's really going on. That was the document I read, and now I have placed in its tin box beside the bas-relief and the papers of Professor Angel. With it shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein is pieced together that which I hope may never be pieced together again. I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me. But I do not think my life will be long. As my uncle went, as poor Johansson went, so shall I go. 
I know too much, and the cult still lives. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose, again in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more, for the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storm, but his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or else the world would now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits in dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity and see it meets no other eye. And that's it. I mean, it's hardly even a story by modern standards of plot. Nothing happens to the main character. So why does this work? Well, I see a couple of ways. One, this is more like a History Channel show than a thriller. Secrets of the ancient Egyptians, perhaps. We found this crazy thing out, and then we found another crazy thing out. Could we be on the verge of unlocking the lost secrets of Tutankhamun? And then you're drawn into the next part. It's informational suspense rather than dramatic suspense. And while we don't see this device much in fiction anymore, we see it all the time in nonfiction. And I've read some fantastic nonfiction books and listened to some great podcasts that use this technique to propel you through the story. The second reason is the revelation. The true nature of the universe is revealed to the reader through Francis. And this kind of revelation story is strange to us now because, in a way, things aren't obscured. If this story happened now, we wouldn't have to stumble on it and clipping services to put it together. I could go to the USGS website and scrape earthquake data around the world to pinpoint exactly where Riley was and exactly when it rose. And we'd probably have shaky cell phone video of the ship driving through Cthulhu's tentacled face. And somebody would have gotten the whole thing on an undersea survey or a satellite photo. But the story and the revelation still work because the underlying horror is our meaninglessness in the universe. This is only more true the more we can observe. I heard an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, every new leap in understanding has made us less unique and less important in the universe. And the interviewer asked, if you came across a theory that suggested that man was more important or unique than we think now, without hesitation, he said, I would suspect it would be wrong. But in one sense, it doesn't matter what we think of this story or of Lovecraft now. Call of Cthulhu rang people, and particularly other writers, like a bell. And I think this eerie, quasi-religious, revelatory quality is the source of Lovecraft's lasting impact. He gave people their myths and archetypes in a way that they immediately recognize, but yet manages to be totally new and speak to modern anxieties in a way that nothing ever had before. He kicked off the conceptual driver of modern horror. The effect that Lovecraft has had upon imaginative fiction is immense. This story was the spark that set it off which is why it's worth reading and studying. In part two of this series, I'm going to look at the story where I think that Lovecraft is at his absolute best, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. So if you like this episode, hit the subscribe button and watch the next one.